This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 9, Acts 9. We are looking today at uh, one of the turning points in not only the history of Christianity, but the history of the world as we talk about the conversion of the Apostle Paul. How did Saul become Paul? How did this violent persecutor of the church become a passionate follower of, of Jesus? So he was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians when he got arrested by Jesus. What happens here? Let's look at it. Acts chapter 9, and we're going to look this morning at the first 19 verses of that chapter, if you'll follow along in, in God's word. Luke tells us, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument, instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. 
Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Let's pray. Father, as we look today at this incredible moment in the history of the world, when Paul came to know you, when you opened the eyes of his heart, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts today to understand your word. And we pray for any here who don't yet know the risen Christ, that you would open the eyes of their hearts to trust in Christ. For we pray it in his name. Amen. In 2010, Chris Simpson was leading a white pride march. He had on both of his fists, the, the, the eight knuckles of his two fists, on, on one fist he had the word uh, pure tattooed on his knuckles. On the other fist, on the other four knuckles, the word hate was tattooed on his knuckles. Pure hate. A couple of years later, he went to see the film Courageous. He renounced white supremacy. He began attending church. A month after that, he was baptized. A transformation from hate to love. And we sort of see that in Acts 9 with another individual. We see a transformation from hate to love. We see someone who is transformed from one of the most violent persecutors of Christians into a passionate follower of Christ. But what we really see here is Ezekiel 36, 26 in action. The Bible says there, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. How does that transformation of the heart take place? The first time that we meet Saul in Acts is in chapter 7, and it's in connection with the martyrdom of one of the first deacons, Stephen. And we saw there in Acts 7, 58, that uh, they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. You see, this, young, this angry young man is the leader of the persecution of the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. We, we saw in chapter 8 and, and verse 3 that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. In fact, Saul was not content simply to persecute the Jesus followers in Jerusalem. He wanted to persecute them wherever they were found. And so, in Acts 26, he says about himself, I myself was convinced that I ought, I ought to do many things opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues 
and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities, which is exactly why he finds himself on the road to Damascus on this day. What happened? Well, the first thing that we see here is that Saul was blinded by hate. Blinded by hate. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. But, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So after the stoning of Stephen, there's this massive persecution that breaks out against the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. Thousands of them are forced to flee. One of the places that they fled to was <clears throat> Damascus. But it wasn't enough for Saul to simply get rid of the Christ followers in Jerusalem. He wanted to get rid of them wherever they were. He wanted to wipe out this movement. And so he's on his way to Damascus to, to arrest and to bind the believers that he finds there. Where is this hatred coming from? Where does this guy come from? He is not from Jerusalem. He was actually born in Tarsus, which is in what is now Turkey. Tarsus was a predominantly Gentile place, but Saul grew up in a devoutly Jewish home. He studied the Torah from the earliest age. He probably came to Jerusalem in his early teens when he was bar mitzvahed, and he came there to study under Rabbi Gamaliel, one of the most prominent rabbis of the day. He was an incredibly precocious student, a brilliant mind. And so he, he wanted to study under Gamaliel. We met Gamaliel in chapter 5 when we saw that uh, as a member of the Sanhedrin, Gamaliel was actually urging restraint and calm toward the followers of Jesus. But his angry young protege, Saul, is not urging restraint. He sees the followers of Jesus as a threat to the law of God, the cause of God, and to the whole Jewish way of life. And so he has no reservations whatsoever about seeing them imprisoned or even seeing them killed. In fact, he views that as part of his service to God. And that's very clear from what he later says about his former life. In Acts 22, he says this, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. He says of himself in Philippians 3, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, 
a persecutor of the church. So Saul's persecution of the church was part of his zeal for God. He was doing this for religious reasons. It was not for racial reasons. He was not a racist. It wasn't racial or ethnic. At this point, the very people that he's persecuting are all Jews, just like him. But he genuinely viewed them as heretics and as threats to the law of God and the cause of God in the world. And, 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 and he viewed his persecution of them as part of his zeal for God and his service to God. And in his self-righteous hate, he had no reservations whatsoever about seeing them imprisoned or even killed, blinded by hate. Second, blinded by love. Blinded by love. Verses three and four. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Isn't it interesting that when the risen Christ speaks to Saul, he doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's how closely Jesus is bound up with his followers. If you know Jesus, you are united to Christ. And a blow against you is a blow against him. That should be a great encouragement to us, you know, that we are identified with him. He identifies himself with his people. Verse five, and he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The late New Testament scholar, I. Howard Marshall says this, in persecuting the Christians, Saul was persecuting Jesus, but above all that, in persecuting Jesus, he was persecuting one who had now attained to a heavenly status and was thus shown to be vindicated and upheld by God. Paul's zeal for the cause of God, Saul's Paul's zeal for the cause of God had turned into an attack on the God who raised Jesus from the dead. In other words, as Saul sees the resurrected Christ, exalted, risen, in the shattering moment, he comes to understand that in persecuting the followers of Jesus, He's persecuting Jesus himself, but beyond that, in persecuting Jesus, he is attacking the very God that he has pledged his life to serving. He's attacking the God that he believed he was serving. Now this is utterly shattering for him to realize this. We see in in verses six and following 
Jesus tells him, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Hearing the voice but seeing no one, Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. But in a way, for the first time, he was seeing clearly the truth. Seeing with new eyes. Verses 8 and 9. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. I mean, just think about it. You know, here's this, this powerful guy, this, you know, highly re- regarded individual, intellectual titan, and he's being led by the hand like a little child. That's really where transformation begins for all of us is with humility. It's when we humble ourselves as a child. You know, Johnny Cash had one of the greatest songwriting gifts ever given to anyone, one of the greatest voices too ever given to anyone. But by the mid-60s, he was hopelessly addicted to drugs, he was about to lose everything, and God came to him, and God, God transformed him, and, and actually the greatest part of his, of his career and the happiest part of his life w- was ahead of him but looking back on his conversion Johnny Cash said I I humbled myself as a child I mean we we have to we have to get to the end of ourselves in utter humility that that's where Saul is at this point I mean he's being led around like a like a little kid verses 10 and following now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he is seen in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So, Ananias has this vision. Saul has had this vision of a man man named Ananias who would be coming. God speaks to both of them through these visions. It's remarkable today what's happening, particularly in the Muslim world. A a very, very large percentage of, of Muslims who are coming to Christ today report that in the the, the, the weeks and months leading up to um, them hearing the gospel that, that God had worked in their hearts by coming to them through dreams and visions. In fact, we need to pray over the next couple of weeks during Ramadan. This is a time of, of, of the year when Muslims are in t- intensely seeking God and uh, Many of them use it for, uh, for, for, for bad, some use it for bad reasons, but, but th- th- those who are sincere are genuinely seeking God during Ramadan. 
It ends on the 24th of this month. And so ramp up your prayers for Muslims over the next couple of weeks because this is a time of year when, when many of these people, as they're intensely seeking God, uh, Jesus will come to them. Many, often through a, a vision or through a, a, a dream. And we see God working in this way here, but <laughs> think about what, Anani- think what Ananias <laughs> thinks when this, he has this vision of, of going to see Saul. He's heard about Saul. It's like, Lord, you want me to go see him? Really? It reminds me of something um, that happened a couple of years ago. Uh, one of our workers in the Middle East was asked by a mutual friend if he would meet with uh, someone who had been an ISIS uh, soldier. And uh, of course, you know, the initial response was, you want me to meet, do what? Um, but he, 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 with much trepidation, he went. And the first thing that this this former fighter said to him was that he had killed many Christians with, with, uh, and did it, did it without any reservation whatsoever. In fact, did it joyfully. But then the dream started. Dreams of a figure in white coming to him and saying, why are you killing my people? And then dreams of the same figure coming to him and saying, follow me. And the reason the man wanted this meeting was because he was ready to follow Jesus. Just two or three months ago in the New York Times, usually not a paper that's super friendly to evangelical Christianity, but uh, the title of this article really grabbed my attention because the title of this article in the New York Times was The Jihadi who turn to Jesus. And I'll share part of it with you. When 22 refugees gathered in the basement of an apartment in Istanbul on a recent Sunday afternoon, it was quickly clear that this was no ordinary prayer meeting. Several of them had Islamic names. There was an Abdel Rahman and even a couple of Muhammads. Strangest of all, they jokingly referred to their host, one of the two Muhammads, as an Irabi, a terrorist. If Bashir Muhammad took the joke well, it was because there was once some truth to it. Today, Mr. Muhammad, 25, has a cross on his wall and invites other recent converts to weekly Bible readings. He is a jihadi who turned to Jesus. Four years ago, Mr. Muhammad tells me, Frankly, I would have slaughtered anyone who suggested it. What happened to Bashir? He was a fighter in Syria. He became disillusioned when he saw Muslims killing other Muslims. He left ISIS, took his wife, moved to Turkey... Still a devout Muslim, his neighbors, apartment neighbors complained because he prayed so loud. Um, But he was still a devout Muslim, um, but then his wife became desperately sick. And one night during this time, Bashir was talking to a cousin 
his cousin had moved to Canada. The same cousin used to take him to jihadi lectures. <laughs> but he had moved to Canada and to Bashir's horror, his cousin had become a follower of Jesus. And in the course of this phone conversation, as Bashir was sharing about how sick his wife was, his cousin wanted Bashir to put the phone close to his sick wife. And at that very moment, his cousin was meeting with his Bible study in their apartment building in Canada. And he wanted his Bible study group to, to pray for Bashir's wife in Istanbul. And so he asked Bashir, put the phone close to your wife so we can pray. Well, at first, Bashir just recoiled in horror at the thought of this. But he was so desperate that he relented. And so this Bible study group prayed for his wife. And when she became well, they got serious. And they started, he and his wife began reading the Bible seriously and they began seeking out Christians that they could talk to. And what really sealed it was when Jesus came to them in dreams. And they felt loved, enveloped in love by Jesus. And this is happening. It's happening around the world. Satan hates it. <laughs> That's why he's pulling out all the stops in our day. But he can't stop it any more than he could stop the conversion of Saul. Verses 13 and 14. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Well, you can certainly understand Ananias' reluctance to go and meet with Saul. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now, verse 15 really is a summary of the rest of Paul's life. This is exactly what we're going to see playing out in his ministry in Acts. Because he's going to carry the name of Jesus before the Gentiles. Now that might seem odd, this d devout Jew doing this, but it really wasn't. Saul was, was a Roman citizen which his family, uh, although Jewish, prominent Jewish family, they, they, were, they were full Roman citizens. And so he has an entree into Greco-Roman culture because of that. Tarsus was a very cosmopolitan place, and Saul was widely read. He had read Gentile writings. He, he, he literally spoke their language in more ways than one. He, he, he had been raised in a very uh, cosmopolitan, urban type of setting, the very setting where he was going to be planting churches throughout the Greco-Roman world. He was in many ways a perfect choice to take the name of Jesus before Gentiles. And of course, no one understood Judaism any more than him. And he could stand before kings and represent the gospel. 
all of which we're going to be seeing throughout the, the rest of, of Acts. When, when, when this man was converted, he was an awesome weapon, a gospel weapon in the, the, the hands of God, but it would come at a high cost. Verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The one who had caused others to suffer for the name of Jesus would himself suffer for the name of, of, of Jesus. And he would do so willingly and joyfully, and he would consider it the highest of honors to suffer for the Jesus who appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Listen, skeptics of Christianity have to deal with what happened to Saul. He was not a mystic. He was one of the most brilliant people who ever lived. His mind is relentlessly rational, logical. How is he transformed from this this this? man who was consumed with persecuting followers of Jesus, how is he transformed into not only a follower of Jesus, but one who would devote the rest of his life to planting churches and suffering, suffering for Jesus, being beaten and stoned himself, flogged, and eventually martyred. Why is he doing this? Well, the answer is pretty clear. The risen Christ appeared to him. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15 you know, that he appeared to the apostles. He appeared to more than 500 at one time. But then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. It was the resurrected Christ that transformed his life. Skeptics of Christianity have to, the burden of proof is on you to say why Paul and these other people would, knowing, would give their lives, suffer and be martyred for what they knew to be a lie. How do you explain that? He would suffer for the name of, of Jesus. Verses 17 and following. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now we saw last week with the conversion of the, the Ethiopian man, what was the first thing that happened after he came to Christ? He said, where's water so that I can be baptized? What's the first thing that happens when Saul comes to Christ? He's, he's baptized. What was the first thing that happened last week in chapter 8 when the Samaritans came to Christ? They were baptized. When we looked at chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, what does Peter say to these people that were coming to Christ? He says, repent and be baptized. So 
in Acts, the, 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 the mark that people had crossed from death to life was believer's baptism by immersion. It's the very meaning of it as people are lowered beneath the water. That's burial as they're raised up. That's resurrection. It's the sign that you are following the one who was crucified, buried, and raised. And, and the, other, the, other, the other mark in Acts that, that people have, have come to Christ is what we're getting ready to take part in, the Lord's Supper. And that's why, you know, we call baptism and the Lord's Supper ordinances. They are ordained by Jesus himself. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are not church traditions. They were not invented by human beings. They are personally commanded by Jesus for his followers. And so if you love Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus... You should want to be baptized and take the Lord's Supper because you love him and you want to obey him. He has ordained these two uh, ordinances of our faith. And there is a mysterious power inherent in, in both of the ordinances. Author Sarah Miles says this, One morning when I was 46... I walked into a church, ate a piece of bread, took a sip of wine, a routine Sunday for tens of millions of Americans, except that until that moment, I had led a thoroughly secular life, at best indifferent to religion, more often appalled by it. This was my first communion. Eating Jesus, as I did that day to my great astonishment, led me against all my expectations to a faith I'd scorned and a work I'd never imagined. The mysterious sacrament turned out to be not a symbolic wafer, but actual food, indeed the bread of life. Let's pray. Father, we, we desire that what we take part in now not be an empty ritual, but that it be actual nourishment for our souls. And we pray that you would make it so. We pray that you would, would nourish us this morning, strengthen us through taking part in, in one of the ordinances that, that you personally commanded your followers to practice along with baptism. And as we just take a few moments right now before we take part in this special meal that Jesus ordained, let's take a few moments and just think about where we are in our relationship with the Lord. Or maybe you're here today and you haven't yet entered that relationship. Enter today. The door to God's heart is open. Jesus stretched out his arms for you and died on a cross for you. 
and his arms are still open wide to you. He is risen. He is Savior and King for all who will turn to him in repentance and faith. Turn to him now. Trust him now. As believers, we want our relationship with him to be right. Is there a sin that you need to confess? The Bible says we can't really be right in our relationship with God if we're not right in our relationships with others. Is there a relationship in your life, um, someone that you need to, to go to um, and seek by God's grace to make it right? We can't control the reactions of other people, but we can control whether or not we harbor bitterness or, or, or hatred or a grudge in our own hearts. Let's take a few moments just in, in quiet and just uh, talk with the Lord. So, Father, we pray that as we take part now in this special meal, that by your spirit, that you would nourish and strengthen us to be your people as we remember your great love for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you wanna spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to Him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where His love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 
I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.